Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Welcome to the show. I'm here with a brand new host for you, Sergio Glajar. Sergio is a first year at the Crease program. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you. Great to be here. So who did we uh, talk to today? We talked to Professor Timothy Noonan from the Free University of Berlin. He is a lecturer in the Department of Global History over there. And we talked in particular about his book, The Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan, and some themes related to that. Yeah, he does a lot of interesting research, particularly on a, an understudied part of the field. It's just generally also important information and, and a valuable listen. So hope you all enjoy it. See you at the end of the episode. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Noon, thank you very much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, where you're researching, and uh, so on. Sure. Well, uh, first off, thanks to all three of you so much for uh, having me. It's really a a pleasure to to speak and uh, really an honor to be included alongside the other guests who have been on the the podcast. So I see my work as kind of straddling the boundaries of both Soviet and Russian history and the history of uh, the Middle East, in particular the uh, Persian-speaking part of the Middle East. I'm interested in looking at Soviet history and Russian history through themes that I don't think have always been used to examine it, uh, namely themes like uh, development, uh, relations with the global south, religious internationalism, and increasingly kind of migration. So I'm very interested in the Soviet Union, not only as a, as a power in a country with obvious links to you know, Central and Eastern Europe, but also a country that had very significant ties with the Islamic world and indeed included uh, much of the Islamic world itself, including in the current Russian Federation today. So yeah, in broad strokes, I would say that my work tries to bring sort of an international history sensibility at times to Soviet history and, and try to look at the Soviet Union and Russia as a power engaged in Europe and the Far East, to be sure, but also um, in the Islamic world uh, in particular. And I think we've all been aware that this is an understudied aspect of the Soviet Union and its history. What brought you to this particular field? Well, you know, I think um, if I'm honest, I think it really had to do with having inspiring uh, teachers and uh, mentors. When I began studying the Russian language, I had kind of I was kind of coming to it as somebody who'd already studied uh, German before. And, you know, initially, I think it was attracted to, to scholarship along the lines of, you know, maybe Alan Bullock or Tim Snyder, you know, people who have looked at the so-called bloodlands between uh, Nazi Germany and uh, the Soviet Union. And, and there, there's maybe a uh, sliding doors moment where uh, I could have studied Polish or, uh, I don't know, uh, Hungarian and, and things would have been totally different. But as it turned out, um, you know, I think for me, it was um, partly the, uh, the inspiration of uh, taking undergraduate classes with uh, Stephen Kotkin at Princeton University that really opened my eyes to the fact that these places like Dagestan or Tajikistan or, you know, Chechnya uh, were on the map and indeed had something to do with Russian. And, you know, if you studied the Russian language, you could go there. And, you know, I I think at a certain point uh, as well, you know, working with scholars like Alexander Morrison, who was my uh, doctoral advisor, 
at the uh, University of Oxford reminded me how there's really a lot of room for exploration, both for the imperial period and, and also for the Soviet period in terms of working with scholars from places like Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan. Alexander, for his most recent book, has, has really uh, logged a lot of miles in provincial Kazakh archives. And, you know, it's not to say that you can't do new work when it comes to Eastern European history. That would obviously be kind of absurd. But I think at least to an earlier version of me, it seemed like there was more uh, opportunity for exploration, uh, letting my curiosity unfold in some sense with looking at Russia in Central Asia and the Caucasus and the Middle East. And I guess the final piece of the puzzle is that I'm kind of a recovering foreign language addict, you might say. And, um, you know, uh, it was really in large part, I would say, thanks to the funding and investment, you could say, of, of organizations like IREX, that I was able to go to places like Tajikistan. I began studying uh, the Persian language with both Iranians and in the UK, but also with Afghan refugees in Tajikistan. And, you know, it was thanks to experiences like these that I became really fascinated in the Persian language alongside Turkic languages, of course, as kind of a, uh, a tool and a gateway through which to understand, you know, that part of the world. Right, and you are uh, currently at the Freie Universität uh, Berlin, right? I am, yes. I've been at the uh, Free University of Berlin since the fall of uh, 2016. And there I am kind of beginning to wrap up my stint of leading a uh, research group devoted to ostensibly the uh, kind of clash between um, socialist groups and Islamist groups in countries like Iran and Iraq and uh, Afghanistan during the Cold War. So looking at kind of the Cold War not as a... A clash between, you know, American market liberalism and Soviet communism, rather through this different kind of register that I think mattered a lot for places like, say, Lebanon or Afghanistan, you know, namely between a, a uh, old left or new left and uh, Islamist movements, whether in the form of like Hezbollah or, you know, the Afghan resistance and so on in the, in the 1980s. That sounds fascinating. Would you be willing to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I, I think many historians, not just of Russia and the Soviet Union, I've increasingly become interested in the history of the 1970s and the 1980s as a you know really pivotal period for understanding the world that we uh, live in. You know, many listeners uh, of this podcast are perhaps aware that there's really been a kind of, I would say, flipping of scholarly consensus uh, when it comes to the 70s in particular as to its relative importance. You know, maybe 20 years ago, people would have said, Oh, uh, you know, 1968 and, uh, you know, Summer of Love, uh, Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. These are really the, you know, key events of the modern world. And while it's not to say that those events are unimportant, I think increasingly through the interventions of people like uh, Daniel Sargent at the University of California, Berkeley, or uh, an excellent uh, edited volume also by Sargent and Erez Manella, uh, Neil Ferguson uh, and others, and then more recent scholarship, like the German book uh, 1977 by uh, the Swiss scholar Philipp uh, Sagasin, there's been a lot of you know focus really on how events like the end of the Bretton Woods international system played a big role in, in, in creating the kind of foundations of the world that we live in today. And then obviously, if we want to talk about you know Soviet history or the, the areas of my uh, specialization, uh, 1979 was obviously a really important year. In December of that year, the Soviet Union invaded. February of that year, the Iranian Revolution happened. You know, in, at the end of that year, if, um, if memory serves, there was the uh, seizure of the Grand Mosque in uh, Mecca. And so, you know, when we're talking about modern Islamism and, of course, uh, current events in Afghanistan and recording this on September 1st, uh, 2021, you, you know, I think that you have to, uh, you know, 1979, I think, appears as a really key year. So, 
you know, partly as a generational thing and partly as somebody trying to pick the best of what was going on in other fields, I became really interested in ways that I could combine, could combine my investments into the Russian language and my interests and the, the language investments too, with this broader conversation about, you know, what the what the heck uh, actually happened during the 70s and how did that change the Soviet Union's position in the world? To what extent can we connect the events of 1989 with the stuff that happened a decade earlier and so on and so forth. So that was another one of the gateways, you might say, that informed my first book in, in a lot of ways, uh, Humanitarian Invasion. And, you know, I think I think one conventional reading of 1979 would be basically that was like the beginning of the end for kind of left-wing or socialist movements, at least as conventionally understood and centered around the Soviet Union in some way. And, and certainly since then, groups like the Today Party in Iran or the Lebanese National Movement in uh, Lebanon or, um, you know, the Iraqi Communist Party, PDPA in Afghanistan, you know, take your pick. But a lot of these have, if not been destroyed, have certainly been marginalized from what they, you know, thought they could accomplish around 79 and 80. So that's, I think, another big starting point for a lot of my work. So turning to the Soviet Union and, and, and their involvement in Central Asia in the 70s, I guess from the broadest perspective, what for you was was the Soviet Union's, I guess, relationship with Islam generally? So both within its own borders and in border regions. Right. So I guess maybe a, a place to tackle this is to say, you know, what have been kind of conventional explanations for this? And I think for folks in my generation who were starting off looking at this question, you know, the conventional explanation during the Cold War was, you know, basically that the Soviet Union was a colonial empire that was, you know, devoted to eliminating the Islamic faith and, uh, you know, destroying mosques and, you know, destroying the ulama, the kind of learned uh, classes of, of scholars in uh, Central Asia and, and whatnot. While there might be an element of truth to that, if we look at parts of the late 1920s or indeed certain parts of Nikita Khrushchev's reign, I think it's that it's thanks to the interventions of scholars like Aaron Tazar at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and Paolo Sartori and Adib Khalid, of course, at Carleton College. I think we've come to a bit more of a nuanced view of the Soviet Union's relationship to Islam, and in particular during the Brezhnev period. What is that picture? Well, it would be one of institutionalization. On the one hand, people like Tazar have focused a lot on the four muftiats, that is to say, these administrative bodies for the you know that were responsible for Islamic education, that were responsible for uh, the maintenance of mosques and holy sites in countries like Uzbekistan. Biggest one being and based in uh, Tashkent, the so-called uh, spiritual assembly of the Muslims of Central Asia and Kazakhstan. But there's also one in Ufa, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, one in Baku, a sort of a Shia one. And, you know, I think on a more subtle level, what some of this scholarship and also some work that I've done illustrates is that, I mean, of course, there was a sphere of so-called unofficial Islam. And, you know, indeed, critics of Aaron's work, you know, notably from somebody like uh, Khalid have pointed out, well, hey, uh, Sadum and this administrative picture is not the entire part of the story. But I think it's still, you know, clearly an important part of the story. And here we see an administration that is hostile, but hostile to you know, shrine visitation to kind of folk religion that is very interested in maintaining a textual tradition and and telling believers that the the sort of learned imam class, if you will, has has privileged access to this text. This is not about Salafism, where you know every single Muslim is is sort of theologically capable of, of interpreting texts on their own. And I think on the international level, where this starts to get really interesting, and and uh, Tazar has pointed this to some of his work, and I see it in my work as well. We see a Soviet Union that is very comfortable liaising with other states 
that have similarly statist religious bureaucracies. And, you know, we don't need to, we're not talking about, say, uh, uh, Mongolia or North Korea or something here. We're talking about countries like Egypt. We're talking about countries like Jordan, Syria, Turkey, that have these kind of state-sponsored religious bureaucracies as well. And just to take, you know, one example from my own work that I find very interesting, in the 1970s, the Iranian Lebanese cleric, uh, Musa Sadr, who plays a very important role in organizing the Shia community in Lebanon uh, during the 1960s and 1970s, is invited by the Soviet Muftiate structure to come to Moscow in the dead of winter. And there are a lot of great pictures of this, this you know, Iranian guy who's like six foot eight walking through the snow while wearing these kinds of robes. And it's, it's very interesting because he's very comfortable liaising with Soviet Union, trying to get resources from them. He enjoys the legitimacy uh, that he gets as a kind of Shia minority actor within a sectarian Lebanese system, being recognized and engaged as a as a, as a state guest from the Soviet Union. And ultimately, when he gives speeches in places like Tashkent, again, being ferried around by the, the kind of Uzbek muftiate, if you will, he's talking about like, hey, the Soviet Union is, is in favor of the Palestinian cause. Uh, hey, you know, the Soviet Union is uh, very critical of Israel. Uh, we can find a common language to work with. So in short, you know, I think it's long past time to abandon this, this kind of crude picture of the Soviet Union as being this uh, innately hostile uh, entity trying to uh, uh, uproot Islam wherever it is. That, that that picture doesn't really help explain to you very much why somebody like Musa Sadr, who's seen as this sort of godfather, really, of and guardian of Lebanese Shia, is saying, you know, wow, uh, Leonid Brezhnev is doing like a great job defending Muslim interests in uh, Uzbekistan and, and Moscow. So, you know, I, I think this is sort of the broad picture we see. One of a lot of statism, a lot of administration, yes, but this kind of organizational model allowing for certain creativity in terms of giving the Soviet Union options beyond just the foreign ministry to reach out to, to countries around the world. So kind of on what you were just saying there, this you know narrative that you, you were speaking about of the Soviet colonialist outlook, but clearly that they weren't received that way. But what were their motivations in not being seen? Why, why would Brezhnev want to be seen as, as a friend to the Muslim world by the people that he brought from Lebanon? Well, I, I think, you know, certainly part of it has to do with the Cold War, obviously. Um, you, you know, I think the Soviet Union craved having uh, closer relations with countries in the Middle East. And I would say particularly after the uh, Arab-Israeli War of uh, 1967, and even more so after the death of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in uh, 1970, you know, the Soviet Union's, you might say, initial uh, strategy, let's say, of, you know, working with more socialist-minded, non-aligned Countries such as Egypt had kind of run its course, and certainly by 73, 74 or so, Egypt as the most significant Arab country uh, becomes a kind of de facto ally of the United States. I think that for figures like Brezhnev or for the kind of Soviet Union, if we want to talk about it in a collective sense, you know, taking advantage of these religious ties, which were not just Islamic, by the way. I mean, the Moscow Patriarchate uh, sent the, the Patriarch to Damascus to meet with the head of like Syrian Christian churches at the same time that in the 1970s, um, just as uh, Hafez al-Assad was sort of securing his uh, grip over the country. So I think the Cold War and this sort of struggle for influence is part of the story. I think a second part of the story, though, if we start to disaggregate the Soviet Union into kind of national components, then I think that for Uzbek and Tajik actors in particular, this was a way for them to claim more space for themselves and to claim a real niche for themselves over Soviet diplomacy to the third world. The Soviet Union had an outstanding diplomatic corps. It had a very professional foreign ministry. It had you know, foreign aid apparatuses and so on. But if you want to give a mufti from Amman 
uh, Quran uh, in Arabic, or you want to be able to produce sort of, you know, illuminated versions of the Tashkent Quran, you know, how are you going to do this? Well, you need to have people who can write Arabic script. You need to you need people who are familiar with sort of ceremonies and and uh, can liaise uh, culturally and, and linguistically with uh, folks from the Arab world or Iran or South Asia, if you like. And you know, I think uh, if you you know you don't have to trust me for this. If you if you look at periodicals produced by the Spiritual Assembly of the Muslims of Central Asia and Kazakhstan, some of which are digitized through Eastview connect collections nowadays, you can see these photos of like. Tajik kind of deputy imams, I guess, for this organization going to Saudi Arabia, of all places, to give, I think, uh, King, um, I believe it was uh, either Faisal or Khalid, a copy of the Quran uh, during the Hajj sometime in the 1970s. This is at a time when the Soviet Union has no formal diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia. And so I think part of the story here that has to be unpacked, and you know, folks like Artemy Kalinowski have, have dug into this a bit, is, is this is a story of Central Asian actors within a multinational Soviet Union, you know, not only carving out, you know, some form of national autonomy or, or domestic resources for themselves, but really claiming a foreign policy uh, resort, if you like, for themselves, uh, areas where they have a unique advantage and unique skills that allow them to specialize, if you like, with countries, be it Saudi Arabia or, or Afghanistan. So I guess I think this would be an opportune moment to turn towards Afghanistan itself. So I'd like to I'd like to ask you just going back to 1979, what the build up towards the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was, sort of foreign policy motivations, or uh, really any any uh, any background you can give our listeners on this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think a couple of places to start off with is to you know maybe start with some co- common cliches and work backwards from there. You know, we sometimes hear that the that the Afghanistan war was the Soviet Union's Vietnam, and we've obviously been seeing a lot of commentary about the American withdrawal, which happened uh, yesterday on the 31st of August, and the Soviet withdrawal of February 15th, uh, 1989. But, you know, maybe a place to start is to say, you know, we've seen these dramatic and obviously very tragic images coming from the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul and this this dramatic uh, airlift and so on. And, you know, you should ask yourself, well, you know, where are the photos of the Soviet airlift from the Kabul airport in uh, 1989? Where are the the sort of equivalent images? And there aren't any. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is uh, the Soviet Union bordered Afghanistan via land. So this was a land withdrawal. And Afghanistan, you know, as a country that bordered the Soviet Union directly, was kind of always going to be in its geopolitical orbit just due to the raw facts of geography. And this, you know, as I suggest in the book, really impacted the ways in which the Soviet Union thought about nations, in which it thought about security and implementing violence in Afghanistan, the way it thought about border protection and so on. You know, for the United States, Afghanistan is fundamentally an issue of non-state terrorist groups that could potentially pull off these complex global operations. Now, that might be a risk for Russia today, and maybe you could argue it was a risk for the Soviet Union in 1980 already. Uh, but what was very clear is that just by virtue of bordering the Soviet Union, it was kind of an objective uh, consideration for the Soviet Union you know, throughout its history. And it's partly for that reason that the Soviet Union was one of the first countries in the world to recognize Afghanistan when it became independent in 1919. It was also for that reason that they were concerned in the 1970s about Afghanistan following the path of countries like Egypt and turning more to the United States. But also interestingly, similarly to Finland, where the Soviet Union you know, had good relations but didn't seek to impose a communist party on uh, Finland, 
the Soviet Union was really quite happy for a lot of the 60s and 70s of dealing with a hereditary constitutional monarchy in Afghanistan, and then later from the period of 73 to 78 with so-called Republican system ruled by the cousin to the deposed king. In other words, partly because it bordered the Soviet Union, I think the Soviet Union was very happy with a sort of neutral, non-aligned Afghanistan, much in the way that it was happy to have a kind of benign relationship with Finland. Ultimately, though, Afghan communists staged their own coup against that ruler of Afghanistan in April of 1978 and began implementing societal transformations, some of which went too fast or counter to the advice of Soviet advisors. And so here, another big difference from the Vietnam experience with which we hear so many comparisons is, you know, the Soviet Union didn't intervene in Afghanistan to save the French colonial empire or to take over the French colonial role, right? It intervened to execute and overthrow a communist regime that it thought was engaging in fratricide and doing really stupid decisions and tried to replace that communist regime with another one. And, you know, it's the story, it's partly that political story that is in my book, uh, but but really I think the unique factor of, of my first book has less to do with this uh, Cold War uh, kind of blow-by-blow blow history uh, that I think you can find in a lot of places and, and more to do with looking at Soviet nation building and looking at development as kind of a problem for Afghanistan and not only from the Soviet uh, point of view as well. So I'd ask, in that case, what what were sort of the strategies of, or, or at least the intended strategies of Soviet nation building in Afghanistan? Yeah, well, I, I think it kind of depends what time we're talking about. And this is a, a thing that I try to highlight in the book, which I think, you know, if you're going to do Soviet history as, as international history justice, um, I, I think it's important. You know, in the 1950s, when the Soviet Union really becomes involved in an intensive way in Afghanistan, this means building big capital intensive objects uh, like, you know, bakeries, like dams, textile factories, state farms. There's a great photo that I don't have in the book, but um, I like to use in presentations of not the first, but the second man in space, German Titov, a second cosmonaut visiting a uh, state farm, a Soviet built state farm in Eastern Afghanistan and sort of explaining to the Afghans, you know, look at, you know, look at how we can go into space and build pomegranate farms for you guys. This is, this is awesome. So, you know, in the 1950s, early 1960s, there's kind of this model of we want to help you guys become an independent country that can can have its own export economy, that can escape the uh, dependency, if you like, although they wouldn't have put it that way, that that can escape the dependency of uh, colonial economies and and, um, and and so on and so forth. But as I show in the book, by the 1970s and 1980s, some of these strategies have changed a little bit. You know, in the 1950s and the 1960s, the Soviet Union really didn't give a damn whether Afghanistan was a monarchy or a republic. And it certainly, you know, I think as long as it was a neutral country, they didn't really care if there was a communist party uh, running the place or not. But due to several factors, by the 1970s and certainly the 1980s, what the Soviet Union does by nation building or does by development is rather different than what it had looked like in the 1950s. Then, and here the case of Afghanistan is a good example alongside places like Ethiopia or Angola, they build a centralized communist party that, you know, is the only party uh, in the country and has a very strict kind of hierarchy and is highly centralized and in, in which you can kind of make a career. There's the aspiration that this communist party touches every single industrial and economic unit in the country, that it goes into every school. In other words, that it's kind of a has sort of total coverage of all of the country. 
they, you know, build, they, they invest more and more into industrial objects, but increasingly of only certain kinds. Already by the 1960s, the Soviet Union is coming to the realization that, well, hey, maybe, you know, because of the fact that Pakistan is trying to blockade Afghanistan, maybe our idea of them exporting pomegranates to the world is like not so viable, you know, and, and boy, we, these people owe us a lot of money now. Uh, let's maybe concentrate more on uh, natural gas fields and oil extraction from northern Afghanistan so that they can actually pay off the uh, credits that we've given them. So in short, there's kind of a, you know, development for the Soviet Union can mean a lot of things. But I think one thing I, try, I would try to highlight here is that it's kind of dynamic and reacting to events in the, in the Cold War, such as the perceived threat of Maoist dissent of ultra-left splinter factions within communist parties, which is one reason why you have a uh, strict party structure to, you know, kick the sort of kick the tankies out, if you will. And, you know, once you've reached certain conclusions about the viability of uh, post-colonial economies and what can realistically be expected of, of countries like Afghanistan or Angola, given the horrible legacies of, of European colonialism for them, uh, you know, maybe you come to the conclusion of, well, are we really going to build a uh, textile factory here? Are we really going to, you know, are they really going to export all this stuff? Well, let's maybe focus on natural resource extraction, and this will at least be a way for them to earn their keep in kind of the, the balance of pavements within the socialist bloc. So, you know, this is a, this is a, dy- a dynamic story is what I would like to, to emphasize above all of this sort of more adaptive period under Khrushchev and the early Brezhnev period uh, to a period in which the Soviet Union is more into the business of building party state regimes Militaries and intelligence services, of course, something it didn't do as much of in the 50s and early 60s, kind of resource extraction, at least in the case of Afghanistan. And one of the one of the main themes in the book also is that, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union and the Soviet military, they were far from the only actors on the ground in Afghanistan during this time period, sort of 1979 to 1989. So you talk about the presence of various NGOs, I think uh, Doctors Without Borders, most notably, and sort of also attached to Mujahideen units, for example. So I'd be very interested to hear about how that worked, right? Having all these different actors on on different sectors of, of Afghanistan polity, I guess all working together and seemingly at odds or maybe not. Uh, yeah, any any elucidation there would be very welcome. Sure. Yeah. One thing that was really um, intellectually uh, stimulating uh, writing the book, uh, I think readers will have to judge if it's equally stimulating reading it, it was trying to deal with these kinds of different scales of actors and different uh, kinds of actors all at odds with one another in the same piece of real estate. You know, one thing that I wanted to do as a challenge for myself in writing the book was to say, you know, When we talk about the history of the Cold War, you know, there are many great histories out there of like East Germany and and what happened in 1989 or the Velvet Revolution of North Korea, uh, let's say. But one thing that these stories have in common is they're kind of taking place in in spaces where still communism or if you like the Soviet Union is kind of the unchallenged hegemon. And obviously there's dimensions in the international economy that we won't go into here. But what I found very interesting about Afghanistan was, you know, certainly in the 1960s when there was all this development competition, but in a different way in the 1980s, Afghanistan was kind of a um, fluid zone of of encounters, of uh, travelers, of of, uh, migrants, of people who... Uh, wanted to to bring uh, visions of utopia to the place and, and kind of live them out, whether that means Islamic revolution or saving 
human beings just for their humanity rather than because they share your political ideology. So that was kind of one impulse going into the project of looking at Afghanistan as a place where the Cold War played out, but where it was really kind of this uh, free-for-all, if you like, uh, between the Soviet Union, between Afghan communist actors, Western NGOs, which themselves had different policies, and then different Mujahideen groups of various kinds. Probably the story that I try to tell is how in some ways, sort of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan became a kind of uh, victim of its own successes, if you like, in the third world. By the late 1970s, the Soviet Union could say, well, uh, you know, the heroic Vietnamese kicked the United States out of, out of Vietnam, and, um, you know, the Vietnamese appear to be uh, closer to us than they are to the dastardly uh, Chinese. Um, uh, but as I tried to show in the book, throughout the late 1970s, um, many Western um, kind of anti-imperialist or, or perhaps leftist actors really begin to sour on the idea of third world communism as a solution or as a plausible utopia. And a lot of this has to do with things that the Vietnamese do. There's the so-called boat people crisis in the late 1970s when many primarily ethnic minorities, but also Vietnamese are kicked out of a socialist Vietnam and forced to brave the high seas and be rescued by various NGOs and, and state actors. But then also, of course, in Cambodia, the kind of, you know, the terror of, uh, of uh, Maoism, if you like, becomes a reality under the Khmer Rouge and leads to the death of countless numbers of, of people. And so what I try to show is how a lot of humanitarian groups that only a couple of years earlier would have been very on board with the idea of, hooray, you know, Vietnam, you know, Ho Chi Minh, uh, we are against American imperialism, kind of flip sides or kind of flip their moral sensibility during the late 1970s. And it becomes possible for them to see a third world communist regime in Afghanistan, even before the Soviet invasion, not as a kind of privileged historical actor, if you like, but as a, a, a human rights abusing backwards state that, that has no, that's claims to sovereignty are irrelevant given the violence that it's committing against its own population. And so I kind of show how, in, a, in an ironic way, a lot of these uh, humanitarian groups, whether Doctors Without Borders or the Swedish Committee for Afghanistan, both of whose archives I worked in, in uh, Paris and Stockholm, uh, form a kind of unusual alliance with Afghan Islamist groups who themselves were, of course, anti-communist and also like many of these, these European actors, intrigued by the possibilities of guerrilla warfare. They definitely didn't like sort of centralized Stalinist bureaucracy. You know, there's maybe a little bit of a post-Maoist syndrome uh, here, uh, speculatively. And it's these groups that, that kind of, you know, learn to swim like fishes among the people, as, uh, as a famous uh, Chinese revolutionary once said. And in doing so, kind of build a, yeah, alternative project of development and providing services to people in the same uh, geographical space as the Soviet Union and the PDPA, the Afghan Communist Party, during the 1980s. So... This is kind of the story I try to tell in, in parts of the book. And, and again, methodologically, the, the reader will have to judge for themselves as to how well it works. But I think what I wanted to attempt, at least, was to look at Soviet power and state building, not just in arenas like Uzbekistan or Mongolia, where it really wasn't contested with the same intensity or at the same multi-scalar level, and more in these places like Afghanistan. But, you know, I think I could have equally written a book like this vis-a-vis -vis Ethiopia, where there was, of course, the famine and, and many hunger aid groups as well. Uh, that, that really interested me a lot, to bring together this global South element as well as this humanitarian and development angle. That was the kind of vision for Soviet history as international history that I wanted to live up to in the book. So I, I have one more question about Afghanistan in particular. 
I, I feel more or less obligated to ask. You brought up this uh, this pretty famous quote yourself earlier from Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, where evidently the day after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, he's supposed to have written to President Carter that now we have the opportunity to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. So alongside Doctors Without Borders and these kinds of NGOs that we're talking about in the book, what was the United States up to in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion? And what, what role did the U.S. have in the, in the outcome, I guess, or in the, in the way that things ended up unfolding? Right. Well, so let's, let's maybe backtrack a little bit and start off by, by noting that for the longest time, the United States had very limited relations with Afghanistan. Uh, in, in fact, you know, the United States didn't have an embassy in the country, I think, until the 1940s, or if I'm not mistaken. Perhaps uh, Rob Racco can, can correct me on, on some of the details here. He's working on a history of U.S.-Afghanistan uh, relations. But, you know, in the 1950s, there was a term that seems kind of insane right now in American journalism called Afghanistanism. And in Afghanistanism was when newspapers would report on, you know, kind of do human interest stories about very far away places that you never heard of that seemingly had no relevance to Americans' problems. And I think it's telling that, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, I think Americans and to some extent the American foreign policy apparatus uh, viewed Afghanistan the way that we today might look at a country like Bhutan. I like Bhutanese people. I've never eaten Bhutanese food. I don't really know very much about Bhutan. I know that it's kind of in the mountains somewhere near India or China or Nepal, maybe. I know that they're supposed to be the happiest people. Really, you know, Bhutan is not the uh, burning issue of the uh, national security bureaucracy. So Afghanistan doesn't really become, I think you can say, significant on its own terms, but it becomes uh, significant within the context of the Cold War and a lot of other things that are happening at the same time in the in the late 1970s. You know, when Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, authors this memorandum and, and begins thinking of these uh, plans, this is taking place in the context of the U.S., but also allies in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, fearing, totally incorrectly, as it turns out, that the Soviet Union is making some kind of push to the you know, warm waters of the Persian Gulf, that they're somehow going to seize places like Balochistan. Iran is obviously in the middle of chaos during 78 and 79 due to the revolution, and there are fears that the Soviet Union might try to invade Iran as well. And it's it's only in this kind of geopolitical maelstrom that Afghanistan becomes increasingly significant. What the United States decides to do is to begin supplying arms and, and money through a kind of complex that involves the Pakistani intelligence services, the inter-services intelligence or ISI, and also a lot of kind of dollar for dollar matching from Saudi Arabia to go to the not to the African resistance as a whole, but in particular to seven Sunni Mujahideen parties uh, based out of Peshawar, Pakistan, that are kind of handpicked from Pakistani intelligence services. It provides aid to all seven of these parties, but in particular, groups uh, such as the so-called Hezbi Islami, Gobanin Hekmatyar, get the lion's share of the funding. These are centrally organized cadre parties, somewhat similar to communist parties, but which, you know, are increasingly outfitted with advanced, you know, with Soviet weapons that are sometimes stolen, sometimes given from countries like Egypt, which had huge stores of these countries. You know, they blow up buildings, they murder people, they, you know, take back uh, territory inside of Afghanistan. And, you know, obviously, eventually they succeed in, in pushing the Soviets out. But I think it's interesting to note that the United States, through this sort of support of this sort of Islamist, violent, technocratic in some regards too, opposition really sidelines other possibilities for Afghanistan, whether a restoration of the monarchy, some kind of social democratic option, 
Maoism, which had been a force in Afghanistan, is, is totally marginalized. Shia groups, which have their own disputes, and some of them get funding from Iran during this period, are rather marginalized. Yeah, ultimately, you know, the United States backs, I would say, Pakistan's in particular vision for the region, which is to say a Afghan state that is totally on its knees, has no agency, and poses absolutely no threat to Pakistan, and in particular, will have no possibility of making the Pashtun national issue among the Pashtun majority, or minority, excuse me, of uh, Western Pakistan into a potential domestic issue for Pakistan. A lot of this, we ought to say, takes place in the shadow of the 1971 war in which Pakistan had been cut in half and lost Pakistan, which then became Bangladesh. There were fears that somehow the Soviets would try to detach uh, the Pashtun or Baluch parts of Western Pakistan and somehow get to the Indian Ocean. But obviously the, the situation we have in 89 and now again in 2021 is that uh, Afghanistan is totally a broken country and poses no threat to uh, Pakistan. And, um, you know, we have a kind of Pashtun nationalist government in Kabul, if you like, but it's a uh, Islamist one and one that has no aspirations of uniting Pakistani Pashtuns with Afghan Pashtuns. In the interest of time, I'm going to stick to Afghanistan. I, I wanted to ask you about I think one chapter in your book, Humanitarian Invasion, that we haven't spoken about, which is how the Soviet Union approached and used women's rights issues and sort of the station of women in Afghan society in their own attempts to develop the country. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking about that a little bit to our readers, because I noticed that there's a lot of similarities for as many differences as there are in, in cliches about American and, and Soviet interventions in Afghanistan. This one, I was kind of shocked by what you'd written about in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth noting that, you know, I did the research for this book approximately from 2009 to 2015 or so. You know, obviously, uh, anybody who was reading the news during that period would note that the um, issue of women's rights in Afghanistan, I would say, was a, a major justification for the surge that happened in 2009. People who belong to the uh, cohort of kind of older millennials that, that I do may recall that in 2010 or 2011, there was a cover of Time magazine featuring a Afghan woman whose nose had been completely destroyed through a acid attack, if I'm not mistaken. Fortunately, she was able to have her nose cosmetically restored in the U.S. But the, the basic takeaway was, look, if we uh, if we don't do nation building in Afghanistan, there's going to be, you know, sort of horrible consequences for Afghan women and, and you know, making light of what is like objectively a tragic situation, I, I strongly suspect that we'll see more stories like this in, uh, you know, in outlets like, I don't know, New York Times or Atlantic. But as I tried to show in the book, you know, it's kind of interesting to note that the cause or the situation of Afghan women has been really internationalized by not only the United States, but by other foreign powers um, in history. You know, it's kind of strange that we, you know, I don't think we hear a lot of stories about the plight of women in, say, rural Egypt or Saudi Arabia, just to take two examples. But uh, setting that point aside, as I try to show in the book, the uh, Soviet Union has its own way of kind of making women's rights, if you like, but they wouldn't call it that, into a sort of object of foreign policy or into a foreign policy alibi in the context of its occupation of Afghanistan. As I show in the book, communist parties and communist states, especially by the 1950s and 1960s, often had what we would today call gongos, that is to say, government-organized kind of NGOs, if you like, of women's organizations. These existed uh, all over Eastern Europe, and in the context of the Soviet Union and Afghanistan, they were there too. These sorts of, you know, Committee for Soviet Women, or the Democratic Organization of the Women of Afghanistan. 
And I tried to show how both advisors on the ground, people who are working for organizations like Comsomol, are really interested in organizing Afghan girls into kind of pioneer units and making sure that women are being educated. But I also show how activists for these Soviet organizations, who again, to return to the beginning of our conversation, are not just like Russians and Ukrainians, but are often Kazakhs and Uzbeks, are looking to Soviet history and Soviet Central Asian history to say like, look at what a great job we have done at modernizing Central Asia, look at the ways in which we liberated women from having to wear the veil, look at the ways in which women entered the workplace and now have, you know, access to higher education, can be employed in bureaucracy, have childcare, you know, you name it. And so I think one takeaway of this chapter is that on the one hand, there's a lot of similarities between the Soviet Union and the Afghanistan looking to themselves as a kind of uh, guardian of humanity or, or kind of global sisterhood, if you like, when it comes to the cause of uh, oppressed uh, Afghan women. But I think it's also too important, it's important to accentuate some of the differences as well. None of the actors whom I look at in the book would talk about women's rights per se. For them, that would be like a bourgeois kind of liberal concept. And I think they would place a much higher emphasis on access to education, stable housing, the right to no-fault divorce, uh, the right to abortion, you know, the right to full-time childcare, a lot of these sort of more social or economic rights as a key part of what it means to be a champion of women's emancipation or women's causes. And, you know, one final takeaway, I guess, that I would offer is I'm not saying that this is sort of necessarily better than a uh, liberal, human rights-centered versions of women's rights. But I think more broadly, if we want to, you know, if we want to be effective activists for women's issues as we understand them, it's, it's really important to take account of the ways in which the trajectories of a kind of women's emancipation agenda, let's say, are often radically different, whether it takes place in the, in the post-Soviet world or the post-socialist world, or in a kind of more liberal or neoliberal, you know, democratic context. And, you know, there's many reasons why the intervention in, in Afghanistan failed. You know, I think, you know, I'm not sure if I would say women's rights was one of the main reasons, but I think that this kind of fixation on, on women's rights as the uh, gold standard for what it means for a state to succeed was was problematic. If the you know final goal was to have a kind of stable society that wasn't at civil war with itself. And also, as I try to show in the context of the Soviet story, a lot of the time what Afghan women want for themselves or what they view as emancipation or, or flourishing is very different from what foreigners want. Uh, they may not care as much about the veiling issue, for instance, but you know, I think in every case they want to be free of uh, violence and anarchy, which unfortunately both the Soviet as well as the American intervention have left behind. Well, I think that's probably a fitting, if uh, somber, notes to end on. Yeah. Before we wrapped up, Dr. Yun, did you have any final points that you were hoping to make or any upcoming works to promote? No, I think I'm uh, happy for now. I think we can um, uh, we can just wrap it up there. Again, I'd just like to to uh, thank both of you guys for um, for asking such great questions and again, for the opportunity to come on the, uh, the podcast. I really enjoyed it. You know, one thing I really just want to emphasize with in particular my current work, but also the first book is I didn't come up with a lot of the stuff on my own. Like I learned a lot by reading not only Russian, but also Afghan scholars and historians and a lot of you know really smart afghans were able to write great books digitize a lot of historical material in the last uh, 20 years and i just really want to emphasize that in you know while while my name is on the book in some sense i view it as a as a collective effort or an effort to um, revive or at least make western audiences aware of the accomplishments of kind of soviet and russian scholars as well as the, the riches of kind of afghan culture and uh, scholarship 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Professor Noonan. And once again, Professor Noonan's book is called Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan. It is a uh, tremendously insightful book, and I would recommend it to everybody. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. Just good enough? We hit all the beats. I think so.